Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom on WMNF, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is Greg. If you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and Greg will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813 433 0885. And don't forget, today is Giving Tuesday, so if you haven't given to your favorite radio station yet, please go to WMNF.org and click the tip jar. Today on Wavemakers, livable cities and interstate highways. Under President Eisenhower, the Federal Highway Act of 1956 became law, paving the way for construction of more than 14,000 miles of interstate in just six years. Today, there are more than 47,000 miles of interstate crisscrossing the country. From the beginning, construction of these ribbons of concrete were controversial because of the impact they had on cities, destruction of neighborhoods, the taking of property, and skyrocketing costs. But the construction continued with little regard for long-term consequences, all in the name of, quote, progress. Now, as these mid-century highways reach the end of their lifespans, dozens of cities across the country are choosing to reconsider them rather than rebuild them. Rochester, Detroit, Dallas, Syracuse, New Orleans are just some of the cities reimagining their highways. They're looking at turning them into smaller, walkable boulevards, covering them with parks, or replacing them with high-capacity streets. And they've been added in recent years aided in recent years by federal funding from administrations friendly to a new kind of urban planning focused on reconnecting neighborhoods, protecting the planet, and promoting good physical health. Not just what's best for moving cars from point A to point B as quickly as possible. With us today to explore the issue is Josh Frank, a Tampa urban designer and town planner with Dover Coal and Partners based in Coral Gables. He's working on highway removal projects in Syracuse and New Orleans, Tampa, St. Petersburg, and other cities. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So, Josh, you caused quite a stir a few years ago when you started promoting the idea of turning I-275 north of downtown Tampa into a boulevard. Tell us about that project, how it came about, and what your vision for that is. Yeah, so, you know, it's been a while now, um, and... Basically, it started, uh, I'd say, around 2016. Uh, I was uh, working at the University of South Florida's School of Architecture Research Arm uh, called the Florida Center for Community Design and Research. We were hired by DOT to host a lot of community charrettes, uh, talk to them, uh, talk to each neighborhood about uh, the impacts of then TBX, the express lanes that were going to be built. Uh, so we were actually hired by FDOT. Um, and so uh, I went to every community meeting, sat down with residents, uh, sketched ideas, talked to you know elected officials about uh, how we could make the TBX project better. Uh, and you what know, year was this? This was 2016, 2017. Okay. Uh, and so you know, basically, long story short, that that project ended up uh, sort of getting reset uh, through the TB Next process. Uh, but you know, I, I left that that process really feeling like uh, there was another alternative available for the community rather than just 
you know, mitigating um, expansion. So uh, that was an open-ended question. I used my Masters of Urban and Community Design thesis topic to study what could, what else could be done, and, or what could be done differently. And so uh, that's how Boulevard Tampa came to existence. Uh, there is an alternative. We can work towards not having 275 as an interstate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, gained a little bit of indie cred throughout the town. Uh, and now uh, the county is actually going to study it and has got a grant application pending to study it further. But they're actually widening the interstate as we drove through there today. Uh, they were busy building walls trying to keep the noise contained in the interstate. Well, uh, they, they would claim that it's not widening, that it's actually just safety improvements, but I would agree with you. It is widening. Well, the highway is going to be closer to the homes. Correct. So I would call that widening. They're not expanding <laughs> Their the, footprint. the, quote, footprint of the land that they control, but they had quite a bit of footprint, enough room right. to expand. Exactly. And, and, and so... How how do they uh, go forward with uh, looking at going in the opposite direction? Well, you know, I think from the get-go, Boulevard Tampa and the idea of removing 275 is a long-term vision. It's uh, I've described it as the picture on the cover of the puzzle box. Mm-hmm. You need to know what the image you're working towards will be so you can start to assemble piece by piece. We're, we're not ready. We're not able to take 275 out today, tomorrow, probably not within the next couple of years. But if we set that as the goal and work towards that with every decision we make along the way, I think eventually we can get there. But you know, I, I would say that DOT is not a fan of removing 275. Uh, and so, obviously, they're going to continue to do what they've done for the past 75 to 100 years, which is expand the interstate. You're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest today is Josh Frank. And we're talking about, at this moment, about highway removal, in particular, potentially the removal of um, Interstate 275 north of Tampa, downtown Tampa. So... Tell us what your vision is for that, Ben. I think, um, if, and if you're out there listening and you're thinking this is a great idea, crazy idea, give us a call, 813-239-9663, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, um, and, and let us know. What do you think about the idea of removing highways? But, Josh, what is your vision then for that? How, what do you replace it with? It's, what, 150,000 cars a day on more that? that yeah. More it's, than that? Yeah, it's probably north of 200,000 today. 200,000 today. So then where do those cars go? Well, so it's a really <laughs> simple vision, actually. So you're taking a six-lane elevated highway, which is, uh, by definition, limited access, right? There's an exit every half mile to a mile, and turning that into a perhaps four- to six-lane boulevard at street level, uh, which has more intersections. So um, you're replacing a road with a road uh, mm-hmm. to start. So a lot of the car trips will remain. Um, but there is a, there's a law of planning and transportation called induced demand, uh, which essentially is like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. If you build car lanes, people will use them. Right. The inverse is also true. If you have less car lanes, less cars will use them because it's uh, supply versus demand. Uh, but essentially, you know, the, the, the reason I say Boulevard Tampa is a long-term vision, there are transit components that are necessary to make it work. There are land use components necessary to make it work. So we're not uh, taking the same 200,000 folks and putting them down a narrower straw. We are, in fact, uh, you know, capturing some of those folks and, and, and doing what's called mode shift. So maybe they're not driving to work anymore. Maybe they're riding transit. Again, it's not everybody to go from you know, 150,000, 200,000 car trips a day to 50 to 75 uh, is attainable, um, but it's going to take a lot of different solutions to get there. I've, I've said before, it's, there's no silver bullet 
for transportation and congestion, but there is silver buckshot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we can solve a lot of these sort of outlying issues, uh, I, I think we can ultimately get there. But again, we have to have that as a goal. What would be the benefit of doing that? Well, there's a lot. Uh, you know, the way that we build our cities impacts every element of, uh, and design our cities actually, uh, impacts every element of our lives, whether it's uh, the amount of property revenue, property tax revenue that's uh, you know, brought back to the tax rolls because, uh, for example, the land around the interstate is less valuable, it's noisier, it's dirtier. Uh, so you know, there's an inherent uh, boost to revenue for a city, which can then afford to have better schools and better police and fire service, for example, uh, down to the, the ability for folks um, you know, who uh, have been impacted by the, the freeway construction to begin with uh, to you know, start to see uh, social mobility, uh, the ability to sell their land for more value, to uh, to move if they if they so choose, or to stay if they so choose, and all the way down to their their physical health, right? So, uh, folks who live within a certain distance of the interstate have greater health risks mm-hmm. because of asthma, and uh, less they're inherently in a less walkable neighborhood. The uh, rates of uh, fine air particulates impacting their cardiovascular system. You, you name it. There's a lot of uh, reasons for doing this beyond sort of the, the moving people from A to B. Well, and then also the economic impact too, right? I mean, if there, you have people going down a boulevard, there's that's a place that's ripe for development in terms of right. businesses and that sort of thing and because they're not flying by at 70 miles an hour. Instead, you're tooling along and maybe stopping along the right. way. Most, most people think of a, an interstate as, you know, the, from curb to curb or from sound wall to sound wall. But the footprint of the interstate is actually much bigger. There's the right-of-way that is acquired uh, for future expansion. For example, there's the stormwater and stormwater ponds uh, that are associated with the interstate because they're elevated. Obviously, the water needs to go somewhere. So the actual amount of land that is um, occupied for a freeway or for an interstate is greater than its actual footprint or physical form. So the potential of that land is actually greater with a boulevard for all of those reasons, right? You've got more customers that mm-hmm. are able to purchase or see uh, goods and services. You've got uh, greater uh, opportunity for density and housing and affordable housing, for example, around transit. So it's it's an entire um, shift in what going from something that's perhaps a, a negative or a depression in property taxes and economics to something that is very valuable and, in fact, uh, incentivizes development and, and mobility. Well, and that kind of leads to uh, this my next question, which is or is just about how all these things are tied together in terms of what quality of life means, because you're touching on that right now, what makes a city livable in terms of um, being healthy for your physical, your, good for your physical health and your mental health and the environment and a robust economy. Um, and a lot of it is tied really to our built environment, which it, not just transportation, but as you mentioned, in order to 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 address this issue of this highway, it requires a lot of uh, zoning changes and land planning and transit planning. Can you talk about that a little bit, about what a linchpin this transportation project and highways are and the quality of life in a community? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think that's one of the most exciting parts about doing what I do for a career as an urban designer uh, is it, it, the way we design and build our cities and environments um, impacts every element of our lives. It's a really um, you know, people people think infrastructure is roads and bridges, but 
uh, we know for a fact that it's a lot more than that. It impacts uh, everything from uh, you know, cardiovascular diseases mm-hmm. to uh, quality of life issues, as you mentioned. Well, mental health, sitting mental in, health. in congestion, you know, rather than yeah. having a nice walk to work or a bike ride. Or noise, noise pollution is a, is a big impact noise. on mental health. It impacts the quality of sleep, for example. Uh, so, you know, living next to uh, an interstate, um, you have sound levels, decibel levels, which are closer closer to runways at Tampa International than they are to some of the more suburban neighborhoods that we have. So. Um, you know, it, it, it's a urban design is is a is a really amazing thing because it allows us to put uh, put a hierarchy in place, right? So most times, engineers have uh, you know, God bless them, they're great at serving, you know, and and great at solving for X. But uh, the ability to sort of be less efficient in some decisions, I think, is what separates a designer from an engineer. And, and for, for me, that is putting people first. So yes, you know, stormwater drainage might be less efficient, but we have smaller and, and better, better uh, sidewalks because we have less inlets, uh, those, those sorts of decisions. And in the case of I-275, when it was built, it, uh, let's take one neighborhood, for example, Seminole Heights. It got split in half. Yep. Um, and this would reconnect Seminole Heights. So if you lived on one side, well, if you live on one side of the interstate now, in Seminole Heights, you want to get to the other part of Seminole Heights, you got to find that tunnel through the interstate, right? That's right. So if you're thinking about the Nebraska Publix, right, if you live on the Florida Avenue side, uh, which I live on the Nebraska side, so I know I have a lot of friends on the Florida Ave side, uh, you have to find your exit, right, whether it's Hannah or Osborne or one of those streets that you're going to, you know, use to get to that Publix to get your groceries for the day or for the week. And, you know, the, the difference between the interstate and the boulevard is... Uh, with the interstate, it's a lengthy walking trip to get to that Publix. So if I'm on Florida Ave, I've got to walk north to Hannah, I've got to cross Hannah and then go back down to get to Publix. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a car, that's a much quicker trip, especially if it's raining or if it's hot in August. And I've got a you know, gallon of ice cream, it's going to melt by the time I get home if I'm walking. So, you know, that is a five-minute walk. Uh, without the interstate rather than a you know perhaps 15 20 minute walk with the interstate so that decision of am i going to walk or am i going to take a car trip for some of those small trips right to a Publix to a CVS to some of the day to day things that we need to do that's why our traffic congestion is the way it is because every single one of those trips almost has to be made by car if you have the boulevard if you have a future with transportation and complete sidewalks and bike infrastructure um, a lot of those decisions don't have to be done. A lot of those trips don't have to be be made by car, so we can then reduce the total amount of trips that we make. Now, are you saying get rid of all highways? We should tear down every highway? No, of course not. Okay. I think, how do they how do they fit into the larger picture? You know, the the, the mistakes that we've made um, as as planners and I think as 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 Americans is thinking of all interstates as being equal. Um, for the most part, I think the the cities that uh, have interstates that run through their urban core, their most dense neighborhoods, their uh, majority-minority neighborhoods, for example, um, have done the most harm. Rural interstates that connect cities, uh, you know, at a larger scale, an interstate mm-hmm. scale, um, you know, are, are, are less problematic. Um, and, you know, the, the, the impacts of removing them are also less uh, in terms of their potential. So, you know, when Eisenhower planned... Uh, for freeways, it was inspired by seeing the Autobahn in Germany during the war, the ability to move goods and soldiers to the front lines. Um, and, you know, the intent was to move folks between cities, not through cities. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, you know, 
therein lies the, the opportunity as well, is to, to think of those areas that are urban and, and, and impacted the most. And if you grew up, uh, you know, before the interstate system was built, as, and, and most people who live in Tampa, like me, moved here, the interstate already existed, it's hard to imagine what it was like then. But for those who grew up here, they can tell you in detail what it was like back then. And they were opposed to it then. So what, how much opposition was there in Tampa to this? Both 275 cut through Seminole Heights and other historic neighborhoods, and I-4 cut through Ybor City. Yeah, you know, and and the Selman and cut through Dobieville, and there's a lot of Hyde Park and Hyde Park. There's there's a lot of examples, and you know the there was opposition. There's opposition in every city that has had freeways built. Um, The the challenge is most of the neighborhoods that were most impacted uh, were didn't have the means to fight. Either they were uh, discriminated against intentionally or uh, didn't have the ability to take off time from work to go and you know go to meetings mm-hmm. and fight it. Um, and so what ended up happening is the, the folks who did have the means uh, were successful in either pushing the footprint a quarter mile to the east, a quarter mile to the west, um, or um, you know ultimately having it not built in their neighborhood. Uh, and, and that happened throughout the country. But for the most part, every city that had even pro and con voices um, ended up having interstates built through their urban core. I want to uh, take a moment to take some calls and read some emails. Um, uh, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest is Josh Frank. He's a town planner um, and uh, architect and um, who is designer. an urban designer who is the founder of Boulevard Tampa, which um, put together the idea for a uh, replacing I-275 in Tampa with a boulevard. I'm going to read a couple emails. We, we've got um, Bubba, who says, I wonder whether the planners who built their original freeways in Tampa expected the kind of stoppage and congestion we have now. He says, hashtag tear down the freeway and hashtag stop the madness. So that's a comment rather than a um, question. Um, we've got Steve in St. Pete, who is on the line, and he's got a question about the idea for 275. Steve, you're on the line. Well, um, I hope I'm allowed to make a comment, not just ask a question, because I've been studying these solutions for traffic problems for a long time, because as a bicyclist, I've been impacted by traffic problems, Mm -hmm. including being run over. And um, what I hear being said here. It sounds nice, and it gives people a little bit of hope and optimism, but I call it techno-utopian solutions that don't address the real issue. I don't care how you organize your transportation. If you overpopulate and exceed carrying capacity, as has been done in Pinellas and Hillsboro and Florida in general, it doesn't matter about the engineering, um, mass transit, whatever. It's unsustainable. It's just a nightmare. Now, I have lived in Holland, and that's what we would need here. They have a command and control system for new housing and other development. They tell the developers what they're going to do and what infrastructure they're going to provide. They don't let these, you know, bought-off, 
Old Boy Network, transportation planners, urban planners, etc., rubber stamp every huge densification that somebody proposes in Pinellas. They tell the developers, we're only going to let you put this many things in. There's going to be this much open space. There's going to be train stations. There's going to be schools. There's going to be everything, green space, public gardens. That's the only way it really works. All of these other things you guys are talking about are like putting Band-Aids on a major head wound. And I just wish that people would stop deluding themselves. It's population growth that's causing these problems, not the infrastructure. And the infrastructure will never keep up with population growth. Thank you. Any thoughts on that, Josh? I actually, I kind of agree. I I think, you know, what Steve's talking about is smart growth and density. Um, A lot of what he's talking about is transit-oriented development, for example, um, a, a better way to plan and, and design our cities. Um, you know, I, I've been to But Holland. it doesn't just happen by happenstance. Because no. when we were in Holland, and we did bike from Amsterdam to Delft, which is quite a ways, but they have the most amazing bicycle infrastructure there, including train stations with thousands of bikes parked outside. But it was a very deliberate process. Can you talk? Well, I, since Steve mentioned Holland, I'm and he's glad right. He, I'm glad he did yeah. because Holland is a is a perfect example of a country and a and a and a region and a bunch of cities, including Delft and Amsterdam and, and Harlem and all of the above, that um, you know had extensive motorways over mm-hmm. over in Europe, as they're called, uh, but had a, had a really American esque uh, built environment in terms of moving cars and having a lot of streets that were designed solely for cars. It wasn't always the bike utopia that we see in poster posters and pictures today. Mm-hmm. Um, they they consciously had a movement, um, you know, largely based around uh, child safety. Uh, because and, there were a lot of children dying. Yes, because there were a lot of bikes and pedestrians being hit and killed. Uh, not unlike here in Tampa. Uh, and so they actually made the decision to start planning better and for people uh, first. And so, you know, that is a direct result of, of that sort of uh, culture shift. But uh, Steve's right. It, it, it doesn't exist in a lot of places in the U.S., um, if, if any. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, as part of the Boulevard project, it's not just infrastructure. It's land use, it's density, it's open space requirements, as he mentioned. A lot of the, the things that um, are starting to, I think, become best practice in this country, but it's a slow shift away from the sort of old school infrastructure and develop, developer-driven uh, environment that Steve mentioned. And Holland did remove some highways as, as a part of that That's right. effort. Yeah. Um, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest is Josh Frank, and we are talking about livable cities and highway, highway removal. Um, Josh, we have an email from Lenny in Gulfport who wants to know, um, first of all, how to get in touch with you um, and learn more about what you're doing, and also wants to know if you work with Forward Pinellas. So, are you want to talk a little bit about any work you might be doing in Pinellas, and also how can Lenny reach out to you? Well, I don't have any active work with Pinellas County, um, but I am originally from St. Petersburg, so I'm very very familiar with Pinellas. Um, you know, I grew up in North Pinellas, went to school in Central Pinellas, and was born in South Pinellas. Um, you know, I do have some history with uh, sort of the original thought behind the conversation of removing 175 and 375, uh, which was something that uh, you know I did when I was also working at USF a while back. Uh, and, and I think that there's uh, potential there as well. Uh, 175 and 375 are 
really low traffic volumes. Really uh, low yeah, traffic volumes. Like, like you like would be nothing. shocked. Yes, yeah. it's shocking. Uh, there's more cars on Franklin Street in downtown Tampa, I think, than on 175 and 375 <laughs> at a given time. And they uh, divide neighborhoods in a way that's like the perfect example of this well, kind of... Uh, yeah, and they were intentionally supposed to be a loop. So there was going to be a connector between the two of them. Um, a small loop, though. A very small loop, but it was to get folks to the waterfront and back. Uh, I don't that that was never materialized the same way a lot of the you know big infrastructure moves were never materialized either for cost or for political opposition. But it, at the end of the day, you know I think Pinellas, uh, especially St. Pete, has a lot of justification for doing the same thing. You know, the, is there a conversation about it? You, is I, think, there, I think there is. You know, I've seen some of the mobility plans St. City of St. Pete's put together um, that has talked about uh, the southern southernmost one, which I think is 175. Uh, that one is being the sort of leading candidate. Um, for the Reconnecting Communities Act grant, which is available now, but because that uh, one in particular uh, is almost acts as a as a wall between downtown Tampa and the communities to the south, which are largely African American. Downtown St. Pete, yeah, and and the the uh, Tropicana Field site is a big catalyst for that. So whatever redevelopment uh, happens there is going to be better connected to the neighborhoods to the south. Um, as well, so there's a lot as well. We haven't talked a whole lot about the the racial side of things and the equity part of p- part of doing mm-hmm. this. But uh, St. Pete, for example, has a, a great opportunity to sort of utilize that and leverage that land that's there for the Tropicana Field site. Uh, unlike 275, they do not have um, uh, uh, 200,000 cars using those highways every right. day. Mm-hmm. Let's um, take a couple more phone calls, and we do want to talk about the equity issue, but Mike in Sarasota has been hanging on the, been on the line for a little while, so Mike in Sarasota, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Well, thank you very much. My name is Mike Lachey, and I'm the Executive Director of Florida Walks and Bikes. We're the group that passed the last major legi- uh, bicycle legislation in Florida. I'd like to offer three comments on what your guests have been saying. First, the reason for interstate highways is more than just uh, moving military vehicles. It's what ha- it is what has bring- brought transportation in America into the modern age. And if you don't believe me, look all over the world, and you'll find go to Italy, Germany, France, wherever the UK, you'll find limited access highways. And you know, so you know, that, that's, this is modern transportation. The second thing I want to mention is your guest said, "Oh, well, these things are problematic." Well, guess what? Nothing in life is perfect. Okay, there are no perfect solutions, but. Limited access highways, I think most of, it, of us would agree, because most of us use them, they, they bring more benefits than, than, than disadvantages. And the final thing I want to mention is your guest made the, the uh, advance the notion that the limited access highways should not go through cities. Well, what happens when these interstates or these limited access highways bypass cities? These cities die economically. And I've seen that in, in small towns, and, I've seen, and you see it in larger towns, when the interstate goes completely around it, then the, the people don't go there and the city dies. Um, any thoughts on that, Josh? Yeah, Mike's got a couple of good points and a couple, I think, incorrect points. You know, uh, his example of uh, European cities and having limited access highways is correct. Uh, they, they are ring roads for most cases. They follow the perimeter. They have layers, uh, you know, for example, one being a kilometer out, a couple kilometers out. But they circle the city and have access points on and off for folks uh, that is a much more direct and less, uh, um, you know, circuitous sort of way for folks to move in and around from uh, larger distances. But counter counter to his own point, even is his comment about cities that do encircle themselves that they die. You know, I think maybe there are some examples of that in rural and small towns uh, that are again more complex than just the freeway being built or removed. 
Um, but in, in most urban cases, that's, that's not true. Cities like Atlanta, for example, uh, actually have sort of a, a ringed interstate around it. Mm-hmm. I'm not advocating for Atlanta's interstates. I think they're terrible. There are too many of them. They're really congested. They're very wide. Um, but in, in most aspects, that is a city that is thriving despite their interstate system. So I, I, I think that, like anything, um, as, as Mike mentioned, uh, it's not perfect. There's, there's not a simple answer for anything. It's very complex. Um, but I, I do think that um, you know this specific interstate, for example, going from uh, an inter- uh, a junction at 75 and a junction to I4 really does not the form does not follow the function any longer. So the folks that are using it are using it for one exit or two exit for the most part, getting from downtown to USF. It's not uh, most folks coming from Pasco County to downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I saw a study that nine out of ten keys that turn into ignition. Uh, that are using the interstate start in Hillsborough County and end in Hillsborough County. So it, by definition, is no longer an interstate. Uh, it's becoming an, it's functioning more like a, an arterial, arterial road. Hmm. So I think, you know, but the, 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 the challenge is getting to the point where that decision is easy. And uh, for, for us, you know, for me, it, it means a lot of uh, progress in other areas, land use, transportation, to get to the point where removing 275 is as easy as it is in St. Pete, for Mike, example. Mike, thanks for the phone call. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for taking it. Uh, and if you have a question for our guest, Josh Frank, who's an architect and urban planner and town planner, um, an urban designer about highway removable and livable cities, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. Um, we have an email from Nathan who says, if you care about this issue of highway removal and all of the associated components to it, what should you be looking for in a city council or mayoral candidate this spring? So this is um, a, a question about the upcoming city elections. What do you think, Josh? What should be looking for? You don't have to name names. That's, but- a, that's a really good question. I appreciate Nathan asking that because very often these candidates go into public forums. And if you talk to them, they'll say, on certain subjects, nobody ever asks me about this. Yeah. So... That's a really good question. What should you be asking them? Uh, you know, that, that is a really good question. You know, I think uh, one, one tricky part, and we've talked, uh, Janet, before about the, the politics of infrastructure. Um, you know, I think there's no one party that, that gets it right. There's no one ideology that gets it right, I don't think. Um, I think, it, again, most people think of infrastructure as roads and bridges and, you know, don't really think much beyond that. Um, I, I think the questions that should be asked of, of candidates are, you know, um, talking about the built environment and, and in, in terms of priority, is it a priority to move cars or is it a priority to move people and quality or serve of life people. or serve people? Yeah. Right. So, you know, obviously it's one thing to just say you're for transit, you're for urbanism, but it's another thing to say, you know, I'm going to, as an elected official, make the tough decision that says I'm going to sacrifice efficiency for cars. They may have to wait two or three more minutes. You know, ooh, big deal, another song on the radio. But it means less people being either uh, hit and killed or uh, an increase in quality of life or wider sidewalks and more street trees. It does cause controversy. There's a project uh, in South Tampa right now uh, where the city is planning, is going to uh, limit uh, the four lanes on El Prado to two lanes and add bike lanes, yep. and people in South Tampa are just freaking out over it. Yeah, uh, and again, very very low capacity road. It can certainly accommodate it, but people have a hard time with change. I think Josh, they they can't imagine anything 
other than the way it is. Well, in, in my wallet and in your wallet is a driver's license. And so we are state-issued expertise uh, at, at being a motorist, at, at understanding the way that roads work, and, and at understanding traffic. So literally every person who has a driver's license is an expert at their local roads. Right. And the challenge is um, you know, coming in and getting people to believe what you're saying in terms of induced and reduced demand. Uh, it's a hard thing to communicate. It's a hard thing to say that by going from four lanes to two lanes, um, there are going to be less cars on this road. It's counterintuitive to say that and to think that, but it's actually true. It's, it's a scientific law the same as any of Newtonian physics. But the, the way that I've had success in describing that and communicating that is, for one, taking the, the fear away from folks and talking about the benefits that you are going to be seeing, whether it's reduced speeds, uh, safer streets, less noise, better uh, you know, air to breathe, you name it. Um, but also the fact that we live in a city that you know has a grid. A grid serves a purpose. It, it has a lot more ins and outs. And so you know, for one road to lose one lane is not something that's going to overthrow the entire system. Whereas if you build your entire system based off of an interstate and there is a crash on the interstate or an exit has to close for construction, it throws the entire system into chaos. So there is an element of resiliency built into it, um, you know, that is also something that I think is valuable. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to discuss and, and it's challenging. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest is Josh Frank. He's an urban planner. And we're talking about livable cities and highway removal. Um, I want to, can we get back to Lenny wanted to know how to get in touch with you? I guess to find you at the Dover Cole website, is that the best way to find you? Well, so personally, I think the best way to find me is uh, on Twitter for as long as that will last. It's uh, <laughs> at, at Josh A. Frank. Uh, and then also the Boulevard Tampa website uh, as well, blvdtampa.com. Uh, you know, I, I make no money off of Boulevard Tampa. It is purely an advocacy effort. Um, I'm happy to talk urbanism with anybody who wants to do well, it. Well, and that project is uh, kind of, in some ways, theoretical. It's there's no particular, really uh, detailed work going on right now. But you are. Th- this is happening in other parts of the the country. There are. What, a yeah. couple dozen? Let's get to that in a second. I want to read one okay. re- re- quick email that we got from someone who's anonymous who says, thank you so much for your show. One big thing that worries me is that St. Pete and Pinellas County Commission are trying to repurpose the Pinellas Trail to be a motorized commuter corridor. Um, the trail was chartered as a non-motorized linear park but is now ruined by electric motorcycles and other motorized vehicles. I wish I could live in Holland. Um, and then we have an email from David Bryant um, that says, um, I think you need to play Green Day's Boulevard of Broken De- Dreams someday on the show today at some point. And then he's asking Tom's question is that, can you tell us of examples where highways have been removed and it has been a success story? Because we think a lot of people here are like, what? You can't do that. But you're working on it in other cities. They've done it in other places. We're talking about they removed the... Um, uh, Embarcadero in, in uh, San Francisco back in the early 90s. That turned out fine. Beautiful. Talk to Can't us a little bit about that. The, otherwise, the way it is now. It's Tell just- us about success stories. Yeah, so you know there are a lot of success stories, I think, internationally. A Holland we talked about. Um, in Seoul, South Korea, for example, the Chungatung Expressway. But you know, those those are perhaps a little bit different. Uh, I would encourage folks to look at those because they are really great examples. But in the U.S., you've got San Francisco, which obviously had to remove their freeway because of damage due to an earthquake. Um, but it's incredible now. It, it it's a part of the city fabric. It's got a streetcar, I think, that runs on it. 
Um, the Embarcadero is now connected the waterfront to the rest of downtown San Francisco. Uh, you've got uh, Portland, for example, has done it uh, with their waterfront, which is now a linear park. They removed a highway. Yes, they did. Then replaced it with a linear park. Yep. Uh, Milwaukee has done it. Uh, let's see who else. Detroit hasn't done it in part. Uh, Detroit, well, Motor City, okay. But you're literally working on one in, in, in New Orleans, right? Cl- I've, helped, I've, helped the camp- I've helped the campaign in New Orleans with the Claiborne Expressway. Which is one of the worst examples of, of, of a highway uh, tearing up a neighborhood. Right? Yes, I mean, it runs right through the middle of Treme, uh, and it was incredibly damaging to the neighborhood that was there. And I suppose, apparently very beautiful before it happened. Right? It and let's talk about, you wanted to talk about equity a little bit, Josh, so maybe this is a good way to lead into that, because sure. that was an example of a neighborhood. Use that, can you give that? as an example to us of what that did to a black neighborhood. Yeah, it, it's it's not just New Orleans. It's it's in almost every case in every city where an interstate was built through an existing neighborhood, uh, in an urban neighborhood. It was done so uh, purposefully, most of the time through redlined communities that were, for those of, those of you who don't know, redline, redlining means um, it was essentially... Uh, drawing red lines around neighborhoods that were undesirable, quote-unquote undesirable. And you couldn't get a loan. Yeah, and you couldn't get a loan. And essentially what that meant was these are minority neighborhoods, uh, don't lend to these people. And so that has uh, left a huge legacy, not just financially, but in terms of where big infrastructure and big planning has has sort of um, you know, been, been, been placed. So it wasn't just interstates, it was railroads, it was steam plants, it was uh, auto yards, all the undesirable stuff uh, was generally put in those undervalued minority communities on, and often, oftentimes on purpose for racial reasons and discriminatory reasons. But interstates was no different. They were mostly ran through redlined communities um, and uh, on, done on purpose. Um, it wasn't the sole reason for white flight, but it was a, a big accelerant of white flight. And they built the roads to get people out, yeah. right? To, to, to promote sprawl and put people in suburban areas and that's leave right. the cities. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's why the streets used to roll up in, in downtown Tampa at night, right? And they're trying to get it back to make it a more of a live, work, play community. Exactly, yep. Yeah. There, there's a correlation between those two things. Um, you know, I think the in terms of equity, for me, um, we haven't talked about Syracuse yet, but I'm sure we will. Um, I'm the project manager for the project to remove mm-hmm. I 81 in Syracuse. And, and how long a highway is that? Uh, it's quite a long highway. <laughs> I can't tell you the exact, we haven't determined the exact uh, length yet. A lot of cars? At, at what's being removed. Uh, not so much as 275. Obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's in, in a city that is perhaps you would, some would consider it Rust Belt, so population growth isn't quite the same. But uh, nonetheless, it's still a viable highway. Still, people still use it every day. Um, but, you know, in terms of equity, I, the, for me, I see it through a couple of things, or at least a couple examples. One is, uh, you know, my wife and I bought a home a few years ago, and we had the ability to borrow down payment money from our parents. Uh, most people earn wealth in this country through property, through sale of property, through yep. maturing a value, through selling it and moving again. Um, and so for folks who... Um, weren't able to sell their property to DOT when the highways were built in the 50s and 60s, perhaps were a block away or half a block away. Uh, their land value actually decreased significantly because of the freeway. Generations from them, from, from then, their kids don't have the same opportunity that my wife and I had to borrow money for down payment for a home. So that, to me, is sort of the, an example of exactly why the equity in how we design our cities is something that needs to be thought of greatly, right? In most cases, that is home ownership for minority communities. Um, and, and as an example, is one of many 
that I think is a good reason for us to think about these corridors as being something. So different. not just a pipe dream. This is actually happening in other parts of the country. It is, and, and and the opportunity is to leverage what we're bringing back in terms of grid land value mm-hmm. into something that is creating more affordable housing, creating more attainable housing, giving folks uh, better jobs, uh, access to jobs, uh, and you know really uh, can can improve a lot of folks' lives who've been impacted for generations. Um, let's take a call right now. We've got a couple of fo- uh, folks waiting to um, speak. We've got Michelle Cherry. She works on El Prado and wants to talk about El Prado Boulevard. Michelle, you're on the line. All right. Thank you for taking my call. So um, when I lived in New York, I got around by my bicycle. Even when I had kids, I managed to do it. We did not have bike lanes at that point, but there was an organization called Transportation Alternatives, which eventually had us all sit around our neighborhoods with cyclists, pedestrians, senior citizens, parents with young children, and redesigned each major intersection so that all of us could use them well, including local buses, uh, uh, limited buses, and trucks for delivery. So if we could do that in Manhattan, we could do it anywhere. That being said, I will not ride my bicycle on the street in Tampa because people are going 60 miles an hour and looking at their phones. Mm -hmm. In New York City, there is a lot of mass of cars, um, but they're stricter about cell phone usage. When people go slower when there's more cars, too. They go slow when there's more cars, and there's a red light every three blocks. What do you think of the El Prado project? The El Prado project I love. And I think what people are getting, and I personally, as a business owner there, I, it's going to be detrimental for me. It's going to be harder for me to get to work. It's going to be maybe an extra minute when I say harder. Um, my parking lot is not going to be right outside my front door. My clients are going to have to walk seven or eight feet, and that's okay because they're still going to be safe, and there's going to be a protected bike lane. So to get people on their bicycles, get people out of their cars and on their bicycles, it needs to be a protected bike lane. This is not just my opinion. This is fact. If you paint a line on the street, people are not going to be safe. The law is there's supposed to be three feet between a bicycle and a car. Well, how wide is a bike lane? It's barely maybe three feet, maybe four feet. I'm not sure. And then there's usually a little barrier. So if you were to ride right on the curb, all the way to the right, maybe you would have, you know, you might have that three-foot clearance. But generally, we don't. Michelle, so thanks for happens, the... I'm sorry. Uh, appreciate the call, Michelle. I want to get to some other calls because we've got the, every okay. line yeah, lit lots now. Lots of calls. <laughs> protected bike lanes will get us on our bikes. Thanks so much protected. for your call. Uh, uh, Michelle, it's funny that you're talking about that because I always laugh when I drive up Dale Mabry to 275, the entrance to 275 from Dale Mabry, and there's like this bike lane there between the... Like, like on, I'm going to ride on the, so oh, Dale It's Mabry. ridiculous. I mean, it's, it just looks Michelle, like a Michelle suicide mission. About, Michelle talked about people from 8 to 80 in her neighborhood designing their streets. If we let people who live on those streets design their streets, they wouldn't look the way that Dale Mabry no, they does. would not. Yep. Um, I want to get this call from David in San Francisco because I think this is the first, the, the longest distance call we've had so. on Megan the Wavemaker Show. So, An early riser. David, David, we are happy to have you on the show. What's on your mind? Oh, appreciate it. And as a matter of fact, I can see by the stream that I'm going 
across the Pacific, across <laughs> Asia and Europe, and, and then across the Atlantic to get to you. So, uh, wonders of the Internet. You sound great, David. <laughs> but, you know, what I was uh, going to raise, and I'm glad I followed that uh, woman talking about the bike lanes. Out here in San Francisco, we've got bike lanes like crazy. And not only does it save a lot of money, keeps people exercised. I'd be fat as a tub if it wasn't for my bicycle. But it's uh, it's a strong issue about not being a colony to the oil and gas boys. Yeah. And when you start looking, I, I was uh, spurred to call when I heard you talking about the interstate highways and, you know, back in the 1950s and whatnot, when they were building the interstate highways, they intentionally built them to divide neighborhoods, mm -hmm. you know, as a segregation thing. But they also built them basically as a, a colony development, that all of this money that was going to be going toward um, uh, oil and gas was basically going to be sucked out of the region. And that, uh, you know, if you don't have oil drilling in your state, if you don't have uh, gas refineries in your state, then the it's going to be sent to Houston and Florida or any other state in the nation that would be, uh, you know, filled with interstate highways is going to become a, a great sucking sound of all of the money out of town every week uh, to wherever the corporate headquarters are of the oil and gas boys. And in this case, now we've got Saudi Arabia that, uh, you know, a murderer running the, uh, the nation of Saudi Arabia. And for every penny that you put in the, uh, the gas pump, you're, you're basically making an evil tyrant richer. So it's, uh, it's profoundly important that the local government get on the stick and make those bike lanes, make the mass transit. Out here in San Francisco, we've got so many restaurants that we make biodiesel out of the grease from those restaurants. And uh, and that's money that's not going to go to the oil and gas boys. The buses, uh, if they're not electric buses out here, they're running on biodiesel from the restaurant. And David, you know what I, I appreciate about your comment and your call is that you're taking this from the micro to the macro level, that this is important on a very personal level in terms of your physical health, and it's important on the macro level in terms of protecting the planet and geopolitics. So I... I I appreciate your comments very much, and I appreciate your call. And people in Tampa would say, how can you ride a bike in San Francisco? There's so many hills. <laughs> it's got electric bikes and, bri and bridges, right? <laughs> right. Electric oh, bikes, though, make all the difference, don't they? There's little valleys that go through uh, many of those hills. Uh, yeah. What are there were 47 hills or 48 hills, I think. And uh, there are valleys that go through them. And uh, for the worst of it, you can uh, put your uh, bicycle on the front of the bus and go up to the top of the hill and have a heck of a coast down. Fun ride down. David, thanks for the call. We really appreciate it. I took an e-bike all the way up to Coit Tower once. I was just amazed that I could do that. Um, let's get Carla's been patiently waiting on the line. Carla in Palm Harbor, and she has a comment about 270. Carla, you're on the line. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, and I lived in Houston for 35 years. Mm. I'll tell you, from my point of view, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of all the cars. But I do have an idea. You know all these vehicles they're building now that are smaller? They're like half the size of a car, and they're using them for, like, kind of ATVs and things like that? Mm-hmm. We should move to those and, and double the money and then you would have much more room. And people only use their cars. Usually it's only one person in the car anyway. 
So move to smaller cars. We seem to be going in the opposite yeah. direction. I think the I'm trucks amazed. are getting bigger all the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, and there's a corresponding uh, rate of bike and pedestrian fatalities that go with that. You know, the, the there's a great book. Um, I'll think of it in a second, but it's by Angie Schmidt. Uh, and oh, uh, I love her. Yep, yeah, and basically it talks about uh, you know the height of a, of a hood of a truck moving up and up, and basically yeah. going from something that would injure you below the waist to oh. now being in your critical injury zone. So if you do get hit, your chances of surviving are less. Yeah. Um, but Carla, thanks for the call. It's a good idea. I appreciate the call. Um, bye bye. Uh, we have um, Greg in uh, answering our phones for us has a question from you for you question for you, Josh. He wants to know what do you? Uh, he's asking. Could you replace 275 with the U.S. 19 style road, or is that equally problematic? I think that's equally problematic. You know, uh, the, the the challenge is U.S. 19 is not very safe. Um, and we had a caller who I think it was the El Prado conversation talked about people going slower and you know adding a minute to their trip. Um, I, I think there's a line of thought. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are trying to beat congestion and solve congestion. There's a lot of money being put into universities and DOTs trying to beat congestion. I think we, that's a little bit of a short-sighted approach because there are benefits to congestion, one of which, the primary of which, is that it slows people down. Right. Um, and so we've seen a lot of data come in the past couple of years from COVID. Uh, people were driving less because they were staying home. And because there were less cars on our network, which were built for a lot more cars, people were able to go much faster because there was less traffic. Uh, and so the fatality rates for crashes went up dramatically. Um, because I think speed kills. Because speed kills and because there was more room to speed uh, because there were less cars on the roads. I think 275 was at like 50% of what it w- was prior to COVID. So, you know, for me, there is a, a train of thought that says, we do want congestion in some places because it does slow things down. And potholes. <laughs> Sorry, well, congestions. Yeah. <laughs> well, congestion, there's a lot of ways to, to safely control congestion. And, yeah. and I would argue that also, if you're thinking of congestion as a, 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 an indicator of value, it's a great indicator of value. People are, a lot of people are going to a downtown uh, for jobs, for recreation, for other events, other things. Right. So congestion is a reflection of that value. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of people are desiring to go to that place. So in terms of economics, it's also pretty valuable because it shows you exactly where it's valuable and where it's not. So I, again, we could talk at length about, about that. Well, we talked uh, briefly about equity, and I know uh, the DOT Secretary Pete Buttigieg has talked about how, in many cases, racism is built into these highways. And that has resulted in Ron DeSantis taking <laughs> issue with him, saying, how can a highway be racist? Right. So do we see? Are you anticipating this continuing to be kind of a a, 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 a clash of, of, of between, say, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis representing Republicans and Pete Buttigieg representing Democrats? Uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's another um, front in in sort of the political battle. I think infrastructure has started to creep into that, not just in terms of right versus left, but urban versus rural. Um, you know, I mean, obviously highways aren't racist, but decisions well, that drove them, them and where they yeah, were built. Obviously, concrete—you can't anthropomorphize, <laughs> anthropomorphize concrete. But uh, you know, th- there is a lot of intentions that you know, highways are where they are because of uh, race in a lot of in a lot of places. So uh, it, to to you know 
not believe that, I think, is just... Whether it was intentional or not, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's not logical. Yeah. Um, we've got Justin and St. Pete on the line. Justin, um, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Hey, um, just back to the South Tampa thing. I, I think that El Prado is going to be kind of a disaster because there's so much development in the military base. And so, you know, do you think there's anything to do about the South Tampa Peninsula, uh, the Dale Mabry aspect? What do you mean? Something to do about it in terms of... Well, El Prado is a, an east-west road, just for those who aren't familiar with that no, area. I, yeah, but it's, you know, it, it's just going to... Then you have... Um, it east connects west. the two access points, roads to the McDill, though. Yes, it does. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering if there was a way out of that yeah, I, you know, I think again. Thanks, Justin, for the call. There's probably not one Thanks. solution. There's probably a lot of things that need to happen uh, in concert with one another. But to his point, there's a lot of growth south of Gandhi, which sure. is not only a lot of it kind of the, relies on the two lane West Shore, but also it's very low lying. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it in the coastal high hazard zone, yes. which is another element. You know, resiliency and infrastructure is a big topic uh, that we could talk about. But you know, for me, um, the, the the simplest answer is often the the easiest and the correct. Uh, answer and that is uh, for me it's less trips so it's not about uh, you know expanding and creating more trips in in the peninsula or in any restricted area it's about reducing trips right so by by hook and crook whether that's land use uh, and having uh, more people closer to a grocery mm-hmm. store uh, having grocery stores in more neighborhoods having smaller schools, for example, and not having sort of large schools where everyone has to take a car or a bus to get to, having mm-hmm. smaller schools throughout the peninsula. There's a, there's a lot of things, but the, the crux of it is we need to have less car trips, period. It's um, interesting about how it all is tied. So many of these pieces are tied together. Affordable housing, that's another component of it, right? Um, we're going to have time for one more call, so let's take a call from Gloria Jean Royster, a Tampa legend in her own right. So, Gloria Jean, you're on the line. Hi, Thanks for calling. Hi, a dear friend. Hi. Hello, everyone. The current incarnation of North Ashley Drive is not livable, livable for area residents. I live downtown. Um, I live four, uh, three blocks from there and four blocks from the Tampa Riverwalk. The interstate dumps cars into uh, this short space that largely turn west onto Kennedy Boulevard and don't add value to residents and area businesses. Moreover, it is a historic barrier within several communities and cuts off direct access to the Tampa Riverwalk for north downtown residents and tourists. That's a great point. Can get 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 rid of that thing there, Josh? What do you <laughs> think? So? Gloria, thanks for calling. We've only got like a minute left, so I'm going to let Josh respond to your comment very quickly. Yeah, that that goes back to the comment I made about the the footprint of the interstate being larger than what we see, you know, from curb to curb. Um, its exits, for example, that extend far into urban areas or divide communities, also are a part of that legacy, and and you know is is ripe for the same level of reconnecting communities that we've talked about. So I, I think Ashley Drive is uh, way over designed and way over. It's right for out. removal. It really is. Well, the uh, the on ramp you're talking about the on ramp to two seventy five. Look, or? it could still be an exit, 
but it doesn't have to be a, a glorified highway into downtown. Right. We are out of time. This was a great conversation, Josh. Thanks, Thanks so Josh. much for being on the show. Thanks, Thanks to me. Greg for answering our phones. Thanks to everyone who called and everyone who emailed and texted. Um, you're listening to Wavemakers um, on WMNF. Um, up next is Harrison Nash after the NPR News headlines. This is WMNF Tampa. Thank you.